Welcome to Mental Millennials with your host, Shelby Friesen. So today I've got Dylan Jacob on the show. Um, we met at Baby Bathwater. It was an event in Croatia last year. Um, and there was, it's basically just, it's an entrepreneur event. There's 200 of us on a private island for five days. Um, and we actually didn't talk that much when we were there. I actually had your name on that little slip of paper. Remember when you get there, it's like you're supposed to talk to two people and Dylan was on mine. And I mean, we briefly said hi and stuff at the bar, but everyone's pretty much just getting fucked up all night. So we didn't really converse much. And then later after following on Instagram, I, I saw you posting about, um, about your story a bit of how you've gone, kind of where you started with the businesses and then you went through some hard times with Juvie and other things and then to where you've been now. And I thought that was inspiring. It would be cool to hear because uh, for for my for this channel and for the listeners, I think it's important too to show like the opportunity that is available to us now as millennials. Like especially you know what you can do online and all the the stuff that's possible. And and but you you know you have to take the action to do it. And also what kind of forms people into, um, I guess kind of like a powerhouse to do this kind of stuff. So yeah, let's uh, if you want, we can just kind of dive in. To, your, to your, where it all started for you. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so, so my track in entrepreneurship, like you really have to go pretty far back. Um, so when I was uh, a young, when I was younger, like my, uh, my dad, so just to give you some, some background information, even really before like my first business or anything. Um, mm -hmm. So I grew up in a really, really religious household. Um, I was homeschooled until fourth grade. Like my dad really wanted to to shelter me from the world and um, all the, you know, bad things in the world, you know, and in a way, like, um, it was really difficult because my parents ended up splitting up in fourth grade. And, you know, I kind of entered the world. Um, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Like, mm -hmm. I was going to public school for the first time. Um, you know, interacting with kids in the public school world. Like I had been going to like homeschool groups and like interacting with kids that were kind of sheltered in the same way that I was. And so um, mm -hmm. I was exposed to like a lot of new things that I had never experienced. And, um, you know, just the way people talk, the way people dress, like everything. So it was a huge, huge change in scenery for me. Um, and, you know, my mom was a single mom. She was raising three of us. She had full custody of me and my two siblings. And, um, you know, I learned really quickly that like, you know, my mom was struggling and, you know, she was taking help from the church and, um, you know, taking help from friends and family. And like, we were couch surfing, you know, a lot of times with, um, you know, my older brother or uh, like with her sisters, whoever, until she kind of got settled. So for the first like year or two, it was, it was really, really tough for her. And so I was trying to do like anything that I could to help lessen the burden. So I would like help out around the house and, um, you know, really do anything that I could, but like what I couldn't contribute to was money. And so mm -hmm. um, I was always looking for ways, like we lived in an, uh, a more to like elderly neighborhood. And so I was looking for ways to kind of help out, make some money, like help buy some clothes. Um, you know, again, like I was trying to fit in in public school. So I wanted to like kind of blend in and, and dress the same way these people did, talk the same way they did, things like that. And so um, like my first businesses were, you know, like landscaping companies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I started mowing lawns for all the elderly in the neighborhood and then I uh, used that money to buy like uh, snow blowers and um, you know, so it was like, I had a full, full scale business. It was like mow their grass in the summer, rake their leaves in the fall, you know, shovel their driveways in the winter and 
Um, mm-hmm. I had established like pretty good relationships, but it allowed me to like, you know, I felt good about it. It was a way for me to, um, you know, really go out and, and make my own money and, and spend money on things that, you know, I felt bad asking for that I knew were just kind of frivolous and not necessarily like absolute needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was like when I, I kind of realized that, you know, going out and making money was really just about identifying opportunity. And, um, and so that was something I feel like over time I got really, really good at. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think through intermediate school, which is like fifth, sixth grade in the middle school, I'm just kind of the same thing. I was always looking for opportunity, looking for different ways to make money. Um, and, and same thing, like I was starting to fit in, um, you know, I think early on, I know we had talked about this before, but like early on, I learned that like, okay, if I was getting bullied for being the new kid or the way I dressed or whatever, like the easy answer to that was to answer it with violence. So like, I, I kind of established the fact that like, I, you know, I was kind of the, not a, like, I wasn't a bully whatsoever. It was more just like, if anyone came to me and was like bullying me, like I wouldn't take it. And so you know, after like a year or two of like probably 10 fights over my first two years in school, like I didn't really get bothered anymore. And I had like established a good set of friends and everything else. Um, But then it stuck with me. Like I had this like chip on my shoulder where I was like, oh, you know, this is like who I am now, you know, like I'm this bad kid and, and, you know, don't mess with me, whatever. And, um, and like that got me into a lot of trouble. I mean, once I got into middle school, same thing, like, on the business side, I had a bunch of side hustles. Um, you know, I, I still was always trying to identify like new ways to make money, but then, um, and I was a straight A student, like I wasn't a bad kid. I just, I really got into some stuff that like, ultimately I just didn't think I'd get caught for, um, Mm -hmm. or or I didn't like fully understand, uh, the true ramifications of like what I was really getting myself into. And so, um, like in eighth grade, I ended up injuring someone really badly in a fight in school. Um, I was actually expelled for it. It's like I had to go in front of the school board, superintendent, everyone. Um, they decided to expel me for that semester. So that was first semester. Um, um, and then, what, what was that fight like about? Do you remember? Yeah, it was absolutely, it was like what you'd expect an eighth grade fight to be. <laughs> so, like I was on the wrestling team and um, this kid was like one of our star football players. And, uh, you know, he joined the wrestling team for the first time. He was like 50 pounds over my weight class. Um, but like pretty big and clumsy and like didn't really know how to fight or wrestle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so when we were in practice, like I would beat him consistently. And it was always like in the locker room, you'd always talk about like how in a real fight I would lose and things like that. And so that was literally what it was over. It was, it was really <laughs> stupid. Um, but we were in the hall and he like effectively like came up and pushed the books out of my hands. And then mm-hmm. I just like blacked out and, uh, and then like woke up to like a, a pool of blood and, um, literally what had happened like he had braces mm-hmm. so um like when you have braces your teeth are moving around and it had loosened up all of his teeth so when i hit him it knocked out like four of his bottom teeth uh, and we had carpet in our school so there was like blood all over the carpet and like they'd replace out the carpet so it's like a big deal because it was like traumatizing they, it looked way worse than it was mm-hmm. um, but it was the first time where like this wasn't just like a simple like one or two day suspension it turned into like you know, we're potentially going to get sued for medical bills. Like I was forced to go into anger management. I was expelled from school. I was put on probation. And Mm -hmm. um, it was the first time where like my actions, you know, I just always thought it was the same thing. I was like, oh, if I get in a fight, I'm just going to get suspended for three days. Like no big deal, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and this was the first time where like, I really felt like my life was falling apart. Um, mm -hmm. And it like made me kind of take a step back. And so, um, you know, I think that was beneficial for me for a few reasons. Like, you know, I did go through counseling for that. Um, mm -hmm. It helped me identify, you know, really why I was fighting in the first place. Like, why was I angry? Um, you know, what was causing me to, to kind of snap in the way that I was. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the last fight I actually got in. I mean, through, through high school and everything else, like, I didn't get in any more fights. Um, it was a mm -hmm. really big, big turning point for me. But aside from that, um, you know, I, I, again, was looking for ways to make money and, the easy way in eighth grade to make money is to sell weed to all the kids that, that uh, don't have access to it. I mean, everyone's starting to experiment. Um, I had a lot of friends that were older, so I had access to that. And uh, it was kind of the easy way to, uh, to make money. And like really um, that, even over the fighting, I feel like that was what really, really did me in because mm -hmm. I was allowed to come back to school second semester. Um, and I ended up actually getting caught selling drugs in school. And so I was expelled for a second time because um, and, and from there, not only was I expelled, but then, uh, you know, that's like a, that was a violation of my probation. So then I was arrested um, and then I filled a drug test. So then that was like a secondary violation. Um, so I had like three violations just for that. And mm -hmm. uh, I ended up going to, to uh, juvenile detention for about two months. And then once I got out, I was on house arrest for another six. Um, so I, I had a bracelet on my ankle. I couldn't leave the house for six months. Um, what uh only time I could... what was juvie like like i mean i know like i've heard like obviously everybody knows what it is but it's not jail but like you have to go live somewhere somewhere right uh no so i mean it's literally jail like you're in a jail oh. cell single bed um you know it's it's jail i mean it's a, it's oh. a it's, yeah so i mean we're there's co's in there so there's actually guards um you know you're, you're and like is it at a, at the actual like normal prison no so it's okay. a juvenile detention center um it, but, but it looks exactly like a jail like i mean we're talking brick walls steel bars like mm -hmm. jail cell okay, um, okay and so like typical day was you know getting up at like 5 6 a.m um, we had like a cleaning schedule. So we had to come out and like clean all the common areas, bathrooms, things like that. Um, we would have, we had like rec time. So a couple times a day, we'd be able to go play like basketball, dodgeball, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, we'd eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, the, the food there was like school cafeteria food. I mean, it was like mm -hmm. box milk and juice and, um, the food wasn't terrible. Uh, the overall experience, I mean, you know, when you picture prison, you picture, um, you know, like gang fights and, <laughs> yeah. and like, you know, you have to choose at a least, side. At least the movie like, show it get, that way. Get, yeah, get protection. <laughs> and, and I'm sure like, I haven't been to adult prison, luckily. I'm sure that's probably the way it is. But for ju juvenile detention, like a lot of the kids, honestly, were really, really cool. Um, it was a lot of really misguided kids that had mm -hmm. just kind of gone on the right, wrong path. And, um, you know, I, I met a lot of kids in there that I think about I, even to this day, like, you know, I wonder like what happened to them and, and things mm -hmm. like that kind of had a pretty big impact. So, um, you know, it was pretty sad. I think that, especially when you're that age, like, listen, I mean, I, I own up to my mistakes. I know that what I did was my own fault and everything else, but a lot of these kids, um, they were kind of just a product of their environment. Like mm -hmm. I had an ex, you know, I, I, I didn't have an excuse. Um, I feel like a lot of them did. Um, and I think that was what, what 
my biggest takeaway from all of it was because at the end of the day like the whole experience for me was it was like a a, a daycare I mean you're it really was I mean you know obviously like I couldn't see friends or family um you know it it being on that schedule and just being surrounded um you know by by steel bars and and concrete walls like isn't a fantastic experience um but it did give me a lot of time to reflect and so you know I, it was the same routine every single day. I had a lot of time by myself. Um, you're in a single room by yourself, so you don't have like a, a, a roommate or a bunkmate or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like, I just had a lot of time to think about like, how did I get here? You know, cause I, like, I'm looking at all these other kids and hearing their stories about, you know, what they got in trouble for, like where they came from, things like that. And I'm like, I don't belong here. And not in the sense that they do, but like, I had, I had effectively just dug myself this huge hole for no reason. I mean, you know, I had a really caring family. Um, you know, I had, even though my parents were split up and my mom did have full custody, like both my parents still had, we had a good relationship at that point. Um, you know, I, there wasn't a whole lot to complain about. I just, I had really just kind of dug myself this hole. And so, you know, I had a couple months to really think about like how I had gone to that point and how I was planning on getting myself out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that was like one of the most impactful periods of my life. Cause when I came out of that, I mean, I had completely changed the way that like I thought about everything, the way I thought about school, the way I thought about my future, the way I thought about family, you know, I was much more appreciative. Um, I had way less of a chip on my shoulder than I did before. I wasn't really like mad at the world anymore. Like I understood like most of the problems that, that I, you know, thought that the world was imposing on me. I was actually just imposing on myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of just realized that like, I was my biggest, worst enemy. Um, you know, at the end of the day, like I was kind of the reason that all that shit was falling apart and it was no one else's fault. Mm-hmm. And, and that really taught me a lot about like accountability and, um, you know, I think kind of shaped who I am today. So like, that's one period of my life where like I wouldn't change anything. I, I don't think I'd be the same person I am today without going through that. Yeah, I think that's... Uh... I think that's one of the really important things that a lot of people miss. Like you see so many people complaining or making excuses about why things happen to them or a certain way or whatever it is. But once you realize that like you put yourself there, it kind of gives you that also on the other side that like you can put yourself anywhere else in a good position too. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's something that, that I've become much more aware of, um, you know, even over time, it's something I have to continuously just kind of, remind myself that you know if something goes bad sometimes things are out of your control but like Mm -hmm. just like right place right time like there's also wrong place wrong time and if you put yourself (laughs) in a situation to fail uh, and you're not really thinking about the bigger picture like that's still kind of your fault Mm -hmm, true (laughs) so like you know from an accountability standpoint i try to always think of the bigger picture and like how one thing can impact another and making sure that like i'm really thinking about this in a broader scope and not like narrow vision Um, so I think that's something like I'm really good at now. And I attribute that largely to like that whole fiasco that I went through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How everything works together or can work together. Yeah. Um, and then, so, so before you went, did you have a couple small little business stuff before you went to Juvie? No. So my first real business was out of Juvie. I mean, before Juvie, it was like, it was pretty much just a bunch of random things, man. Like I, yeah like bought and sold things off of Craigslist. I, Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, helped out people around the neighborhood, like yeah, there wasn't any real business okay. um, after Juvie. Um, so my first like real company was formed out of kind of the same thing I was doing pre-Juvie. So rather than just buying and selling things off of Craigslist, um, I was actually like buying and selling broken devices. Mm -hmm. so, so I'd buy up uh, like broken iPads, iPhones, and uh, I would fix them and then turn around and resell them. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for all of freshman year. Um, yeah, I think that year I repaired almost 500 devices. So I was doing like on average, like one to two a day. Mm -hmm. um, and like making pretty good money on it. I mean, I'll, on every phone that, that I was selling, like I was making 50 to $100. Um, on some of them was making two, 300, just depending on like, like the model and, um, you know, what condition the phone or, or device was after it was fixed. Um, and then like sophomore year, uh, a bunch of repair shops kind of popped up in my local hometown. And from there, I didn't have a business anymore, really. Cause like I was banking on the fact that people didn't really have a way to fix their electronics at the time. They like, if it was broken, it was just broken and you would sell it. Mm -hmm. um, but once the repair shops popped up, that that business kind of dwindled away because people would just go get them fixed now. So they weren't really disposable anymore. And mm -hmm. um, and so I like went and made friends with all the repair shop owners and um, tried to just get an understanding of what their business model was, how much they were charging for repairs. Um, I was trying to figure out if I wanted to do repairs. Mm -hmm. I think it was a profitable venture for me. Um, but in the process, I actually like stumbled across an opportunity. And that was the fact that like they were all sourcing their parts from like eBay and Amazon and they were really low quality parts. Um, and I happened to already have a source from overseas that had like very, very good quality parts. Um, you know, they're able to, to offer their customers basically much more high quality repairs um, at cheaper prices uh, and mm -hmm. better. Prices. So um, I kind of formulated in that way. It was like, let me be your your local plug for parts. Like you don't have to order them online. I have higher quality parts, whatever. And it started off really small. Um, I was working with one local shop in Indiana. Um, I was still buying up, uh, you know, broken phones and stuff like that. I was doing some cell phone repair for friends and family, but not really advertising it. Um, mm -hmm. But then that started to scale. So like that one business I was working with in, in Indiana turned into like 10. And then, um, you know, by junior year, like I had created like our first Shopify store, um, we had like an online Amazon store. I would scour Instagram for um, hashtags related to like uh, electronic repair. And then I would DM those people from all around the US and send them samples of our parts and things like that. So my senior year, we were working with like a little over 100 repair shops around the US. Um, and so that was really like what I consider my first company. Mm -hmm. um, so it was called GV Supply Company. Um, it was called I, what? GV Supply Company. Oh, I thought you said Juvie Supply Company. No, 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 no. <laughs> no GV Supply Company. Um, and, and yeah, so, you know, really like even taking a step back from that though, I mean, I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. Like it's kind of the same concept of taking acting classes in high school and like you're pretty good at it. But the idea of like going to Hollywood and becoming an actor is like really foreign. Mm -hmm. uh, you just feel like, oh, it's not going to happen right? Like, yeah. You don't yeah, really believe it. It doesn't happen to people like me. I don't believe in that, whatever. And, you know, because I grew up poor, like all I was thinking about, you know, I was a straight A student in high school. I graduated top 10 in my class of over 400 kids. Like I was really, really focused on academics. And ultimately, like I wanted to go to Purdue for engineering. Um, I wanted to do product development and design. And 
you know, from the time I was a kid, I, I always had wanted to be an inventor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just didn't believe in myself enough to like, be like, oh, I'm not going to go to college. You know, I'm just going to do this myself. So college for me was kind of a fallback. It was like, I can still kind of do what I enjoy, but also have um, the comfort of, you know, having a salary job and a 401k and retirement plan and, and mm-hmm. like that comfort level. Um, but I was also kind of blinded to like what I was currently doing. I mean, even though I had a true business uh, right in front of me, I still didn't consider, I still considered it just like a side hustle. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it, well, it's funny because I, my brother and I essentially tried to start the same thing in high school. We got our dad to, we conned him into letting us use his credit card to order. I don't know if you ever ha- remember the website. It was like SW box. No. Okay. Well, they basically sold phone parts. They were from, I don't know where, but we basically yeah. conned him into letting him, letting us use his visa. We ordered like 300 bucks worth of parts, which at the time was like a lot of money to us. So I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe he let us do this. And we essentially fixed like blackberries and modified them for friends and, okay. and made no fucking money. Basically we we're like, no, we're going to make it back. We'll like pay you back and then we'll order more. Basically like ended up giving half of it away for free, half of it broke. And like, so we kind of like went for the repair model um, and it fucking went nowhere. We lost all the money. Um, so I guess like, you know, it's funny to see how you did the same thing, but it turned into like something much larger and like, yeah, back then, like, I mean, that's still, that's a big business. I mean, most people that I know, even like my dad or our family, like they have their own businesses, but they're probably not even as big as your phone business was in high school. Yeah. Well, but, but that's the thing. So, you know, when I was going into first semester of college, so, you know, I was accepted into Purdue's engineering program. Um, you know, I was still running this company literally out of my dorm room and like I was making almost a hundred thousand dollars a year, like in profit. That Fuck, like, that's I, good. You know what I mean? And so I, but I, I was looking at it in a way of like, is this going to be around in 10 years? Is this gonna be around in five years? And like the answer that I had was no, like, I mean, I, I think it will be in some way, shape or form, but like that industry was changing so fast. And, yeah. um, you know, Apple was starting to release like their own repair programs and their own OEM parts and things like that. And they're getting more strict on like warranty repairs and, um, you know, if you had had like aftermarket parts and things like that. So for me, I was a little worried by it and I didn't consider myself an entrepreneur. Like I just, again, it just like, got at the hustle. Yeah. I was like, it turned into this over time and I didn't think I could replicate it because I didn't believe in myself. And so I was like, I'm just going to keep making as much money as I can here. Like I was saving back a ton of cash, um, but I was still going to school because I was like, what am I going to do? to like support a family and make sure that in 30, 40 years that like I'm financially stable still. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see that opportunity with entrepreneurship. Um, and so, you know, second semester of school, like, so I was on Christmas break. Um, we were headed into second semester and I ended Is this up, high school or college? No, this is college. Okay, so at yeah, this yeah. point, like I had already graduated. I was already, um, you know, in school for engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I kind of took a step back. Um, I like, even before we had gone into Christmas break, like I really just wasn't feeling school. Um, my head wasn't in the game. You know, I was, I was literally like sending out customer service emails in the middle of my lectures and like kind of running the <laughs> business along with it. And so, you know, I, I was, I was distracted 
And mm -hmm. so when I went into Christmas break, um, you know, I, I was really like kind of weighing my options here. Of what am I doing? Like, what do I want to do long-term? What am I doing with this business? And uh, my answer, my, my, my question was kind of answered um, naturally. Uh, so like two weeks after that, um, I ended up getting a contract with a company that uh, had a little over 130 repair shops around the U.S. and they're a franchise. And we like doubled the business size overnight. Mm -hmm. and I was like, okay, like, <laughs> why am I in college right now? Like, I'm just going to take a semester off and just figure out where this is going to go. And, you know, if anything, like, I'll just go back to school. It's not a huge deal. Mm -hmm. It's um, not going anywhere. Yeah, exactly. But I was like, well, my business could, like, if I'm not paying attention to it and like giving it the attention that it needs, like it could all fall apart. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I took a semester off of school. Um, I ended up selling that company four months later. So this is 2014. Um, I think like late April, early May is when we closed. Mm -hmm. um, and, and at that point, it was like, I still didn't even consider myself an entrepreneur. Like I sold the company <laughs> for $100,000. Yeah. And you know, that was on top of all the money that I kind of saved back. And I was like, cool. Like I'm probably going to go back to school. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. like, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. Um, but it was like halfway, you know, that, that second semester was effectively almost over. We were heading into summer. And so I really had this like down period between potentially going back to school that next semester for the following fall. And, um, so I was like, okay, what am I going to do for the next, you know, three or four months to kind of fill my time? And, uh, I was like, oh, I'll buy a house. So <laughs> I, a, hey, I'll just casually was, buy a house. Yeah. I, so I, I bought up a house off of auction. Um, it was an old, like foreclosed farmhouse it was built like 1955. Mm -hmm. It was a huge piece of shit. Um, <laughs> And like, honestly, it probably should have just been burned to the ground rather than like trying to fix it up. But mm -hmm. um, it, it, I was looking at it of like, oh, this is going to be easy. Like I'll spend a few months, you know, fixing this thing up and then live here and then eventually sell it. And it ended up turning into a year. Um, so it was like, I was like halfway through this. I was like, I, at this point I was like, I'm not going back to school. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really just going to focus on this and try and figure out exactly what I want to do. Cause by the time school was rolling back around, I still wasn't, I had zero idea what I wanted to do, but I wasn't comfortable with the idea of going back to school because I, I just wasn't sure. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the process of like fixing up my house, I actually started my next company. Um, so it was a high-end glass tile company called Beachy Design. Um, so we really specialized in uh, having one of the biggest color selections in the world for glass tile. Um, and, and at that point, again, like, this was when I had established the fact that like I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. you know, I was like, this is something that I'm good at. I truly get enjoyment out of, um, you know, I don't know how big it's going to be or how successful I'll be, but I know that I can make a living and I'm probably going to make more than I would as a graduated engineer. Like, mm -hmm. so, so I just ran with that. I mean, I, I was working on my house. I started this business in the process. Um, I took my first trip to China when I was 19 and, um, you know, I, I had another semi-successful business. Like, you know, we're, we're doing, uh, close to a hundred thousand dollars in sales um, a year. Yeah. A year. Uh, so How? after a year, we're, we're closing almost a hundred thousand dollars in sales mm -hmm. profitability wise. Like again, and I was single employee. So it was pretty much just like a high paying job. Mm -hmm. Um, profitability wise, like we're a very profitable company. 
How did um, you decide on a tile company? Was that because you were working on the house? Yeah. Yeah. So this kind of goes back to like just trying to identify opportunity and everything that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I was in the finishing stages of the house. We were working on the kitchen. Um, and, and so mind you, like I, I rebuilt this entire house myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I literally was like watching YouTube videos. <laughs> I pulled all the permits myself. Um, I submitted all the technical drawings myself. I took electrician tests to run all the electric in the house. Like I, like, I literally learned everything. Built, yeah. I like, I did everything. Um, like all the way from like literally working with engineers to put in headers across the house and take walls out to like laying tile and grouting it to like installing cabinets and shimming them and making sure they're even like mm-hmm. I did everything. Um, and it was fun. Like it was, it taught me a lot. Um, I can't say that I would do it again, but in the process, <laughs> like we were in the finishing stages of like the kitchen and, um, I had to go pick out the granite slab that I wanted for the kitchen. And I remember I walked into the granite showroom and there was probably 300 different types of granite. I mean, mm-hmm. like every color range. And then within that, like every slab was different and had like different color variations inside. And it was like super overwhelming. And it took me a while to pick out the slab that I wanted. But once I did, um, I was like, okay, I want to pick out a backsplash. And so I went into like an interior design showroom in Indy and was looking through their glass uh, color selections for backsplashes. And there was like five color options. And <laughs> I, I went to another showroom and like, same thing. I went to Home Depot, I went to Lowe's, I went everywhere. And, and everyone kind of had just like two, three, four color options. They were all like different variations of earth tones. No one had like fun color variations to really kind of match up with the availability of of all the different variations of granite and, and different mm-hmm. counter covers. So, um, you know, I was actively searching for business. I mean, I kept the journal really from, from senior year all the way through recently where I would kind of, again, I would identify opportunity, write things down. Like, do I think this could be a business? Um, I would run exercises for it. So like if I thought something was a good idea, I would look up like who the competition is and like how big is the market and how new is it? How old is it and established is it? Like, um, do I think there's an actually like an opportunity here? Mm -hmm. And this is the first one we were kind of approaching the end of the house. I needed to find something to start bringing in money. Um, and, and I thought this was a good opportunity. There, there really weren't any, um, established glass tile brands. There were some older brands that did ceramic and porcelain that were getting into glass tile, but, their color variations really sucked. Um, and so the, the idea behind Vichy Design was just creating um, a color variation that, that kind of matched up with the availability of, of all the counter coverings that were available too. So we had like over 25 different colors of glass tile. And then along with that, we had a ton of different sizes and shapes and variations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that was like, that was my first time going to China. Um, you know, this is my second time really starting a business from scratch um you know and each of these businesses were kind of stepping stones like they taught me the fundamentals of of like you know identifying um you know opportunity and creating value and like ultimately just kind of acting on those things rather than just being like paralyzed by fear mm-hmm. and um you know it, it taught me about you know ultimately just kind of like believing in myself and, and so this business, again, like it wasn't uber successful, but it was paying the bills. Again, I was making good money. Mm-hmm. And, um, I always just felt like something was missing though. Like, even though I really enjoyed that, I still wasn't hundred percent happy. 
Um, I was still frequently writing down ideas, ideas in my journal and like kind of looking for additional things that I could work on because like, I just wasn't quite happy with what was in front of me. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of where like the idea for roommate came in. So, you know, in this journal, I probably had like 500 different concepts. Um, (laughs) I mean, every single day I was writing down like things that I liked, didn't like about products and services and experiences and whatever. And, Mm -hmm. you know, is there something, is there an opportunity here for me to like come in and do something better? And, and roommate, like the whole concept for that, literally it was the most, it was easy. It was, it was, uh, I turned 21 and like, effectively discovered that I fucking hated warm beer. And <laughs> I, I like wrote down, I was like, figure out a way to keep beer cold, you know? Yeah. And, and that was like what sparked this entire thing. So it was such a basic concept and like easy um, idea. And I mean, what it's turned into today is just, it's crazy to like look back on. Cause, cause at the time, like this was just another crazy idea I wrote down in my journal. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one that like really, really stood out to me um, after I ran that brand exercise of like, does something exist? No. Um, you know, what does this market look like? It's one of the fastest growing sectors of housewares. Um, you know, who are the current competitors and like, what are they doing? And I identified, you know, really the the market that we kind of established was that like everyone that was doing drinkware was just focusing on hydration drinkware. So it was like coffee mugs and tumblers mm-hmm. um, and no one was really focusing on alcohol. And so mm-hmm. Um, as I continued to run through this brand exercise, like the idea for this product and ultimately roommate, like just kept looking better and better. And it was the first time where like, not only was I super amped about the idea, but I also had enough confidence in myself to finally, where I was like, I am an entrepreneur, like I'm capable of doing this. And like, I wasn't scared. That was like the Mm -hmm. first time I was scared. And, um, I just remember like starting to work on this project again. Like I went out to China for a second time and um, my confidence really just shifted from there. And so um, that was, that's kind of like a, a I know, you know, I, I went pretty in depth there, but I think it's important to talk about like, I think it's important to talk about the background before you start talking about present day, because mm-hmm. it, often people get wrapped up in like overnight success stories. And, um, you know, everyone likes to talk about like the pretty side of entrepreneurship and how great it is. And, you know, having all this money and nice cars and flashy things and, that's what people show you on Instagram, but, uh, people aren't showing like all the stuff that they had to get through to get there. And that's the important story. Cause then you're just setting the expectation that like, it's easy and it's not, there's, there's nothing easy about entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, and it also wasn't something that I just dove into, right? Like I had two other businesses that again, they weren't super successful, but they did teach me the fundamentals and kind of created the foundation for what ultimately like roommate was built on top of. And mm-hmm. without that, like roommate wouldn't exist today. Um, it, and I would have started my first few businesses if I hadn't like been raised the way I was and went through the things that I did. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think, no, I think it's super important to, to get the whole picture. I mean, like everything in your life just makes you what you are today. And I mean, if roommate, wasn't after those other companies um it maybe would have been one of the first ones right maybe it only made a little bit of money and then you didn't feel confident enough to do it and it became nothing but then you moved on to something else again um but yeah i think like a big it's just continuing to take action too and like i think it's cool to hear the behind the scenes of like how you were always thinking of ideas and writing down like that's something that resonated with me is like 
I'm kind of always thinking like you see products and things that people are buying and you're like, okay, I could make that better. Or what is it worth it? Um, or you're always looking at things. So it's cool to hear the, hear how like, and even still like brewmate, the beginning was a simple idea. It's like, okay, I wanted to keep drinks cold. But the fact is like, how many fucking ideas did you have before that? Um, yeah. So it's not just like you randomly started this one thing that became massive. Like there's so much more to it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's also really important is like, um, you know, as an early entrepreneur, it's very easy to get distracted, especially if like what you're working on currently just is kind of a side project and you're not super invested in it. Um, you, you effectively are always looking for something better. And like, I compare it to a good relationship, right? Like if you're not in a good relationship and like, you're not happy with where you're at, you're always going to be looking for something better and um, kind of looking outside your relationship, the grass is always greener. Whereas like once you really find something that you're passionate about, like a hundred percent, just like in a relationship, like when you find that right person, you're not looking outside of that anymore. Like you're happy with what you have and you're focusing all of your effort like inwards to make that um, more successful. And so mm -hmm. I think that that was like the most important thing for me was with Brewmate. Like I finally found something that I was truly like and genuinely passionate about. And to this day, like I still have that passion and like, that's what gives me up every morning. That's what gets me through, you know, sometimes working 12 hour days and like wanting to rip my hair out. That's what gets me through situations like every, everything that's going on with COVID and things like that is just because I am truly passionate. Like if, if it's not there and you're not passionate about what you're doing, when, when times like this hit, like you're just looking for an exit, right? Mm -hmm. like, how, okay. Like you're, you go into panic mode. You're looking for a way to kind of um, save yourself. Whereas like, with this, it's not that way at all. Like I, I see this in a much bigger um, picture than, than what I did previously. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just really important to make sure that when you're pursuing things that you go into it the right expectation. Um, and if you're not passionate about it, like be realistic with yourself. It's okay to like have projects that you're not passionate about if they're just filling time and teaching you. Mm -hmm. um, but you also kind of need to know when those have ran their course and when you should kind of just like shut it down or, or move on to the next thing. Um, and I think ultimately like any success story that you hear, most people have had multiple businesses and the majority of their initial, uh, like first few companies usually aren't that successful for the exact same reasons. Like they're just kind of uh, stepping stone and stepping stones and, uh, they're just part of the story. Like they teach you the fundamentals, but once you find that thing that you're passionate about, man, like everything changes. Yeah. I think, um, well, something that really hits there too is like knowing when to let something go. And, uh, recently something that I've been talking, well, that I've heard and been talking about is like the difference between quitting and giving up. So quitting would be cause everyone, I mean, they put a bad kind of like bad note on quitting, but you know, quitting is when, um, when you no longer want the outcome of what you're trying to get, but giving up is when you still want that, but you're not willing to do what it takes. Um, and I think that's important because, you know, it's fine if you understand that you've built something, you're working on something and you're like, okay, you know what? I've learned from this. It's great. And I'm still learning, but actually it's just, I really don't want where this is going anymore. And there's something else out there for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a super important lesson. So, and, um, I guess with your, I, I do you want to touch on brewmate a little bit more? Um, yeah. 
I, I, because with it, I mean, I, I think it's a really cool story with like, you've gone through all the other things, but when you, but then how fast it grew, I mean, it just goes to show that when you find that thing you're passionate about and you're willing to do whatever it takes with it, like what you can really make of it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think before I dive into the full brewmate story, like something mm -hmm. when I, I, I don't want to kind of jump back to the brand exercise. Mm -hmm. um, so when I did a, the brand exercise for brewmate, like not only did I identify that there was this huge gap in this market, but I knew that this market was huge. Like the players that were in this market were, you know, at the time, 50, $60 million companies. Now some of them are $500 million plus companies. Mm -hmm. uh, but I knew that this was like a massive opportunity, a massive market. And so when I went into this, like this is the first time where I had like a big vision. Um, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, how can I make $100,000 or, you know, ultimately just create like a nice little flow of cash. Mm -hmm. um, this was like the first time where I was like, wow, like I think I have the opportunity to build something like very long lasting and impactful. Um, mm -hmm. And so when I went into Brewmate, like, that's how I was thinking about it. And I think that mindset, like leading into that really also um, kind of helped set the tone for where Brewmate is today. Cause I believed in it from day one. Like it wasn't like we just blew up into a massive company. Like mm -hmm. I saw the potential there from day one and I was working towards where we are today. So mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, I think that that's important. Um, yeah. You, yeah. You have to believe, you have to believe in it. Like, like, yeah, I think that's, yeah. I mean, you have to have that goal. Like if you went into it thinking, Oh, it's probably only going to be a small thing then it pro it might only ever be a small thing. You have to be willing to, to believe in the bigger picture and shoot for that big thing. And I think like dumb luck exists, right? Like, I mean, there are, <laughs> it definitely that, does <laughs> that, have, that have like created companies and, um, you know, ultimately they turned out to be very successful, but they were like, Oh, I never thought it would be this big. Mm -hmm. uh, now on the flip side of that, like, my thought about what we were going to be was not, you know, a hundred million dollar company. It was like, Oh, you know, I think I can easily build a $10 million company. Mm -hmm. And then like that kind of changed over time. But, um, kind of diving back into how I even got started with it in the first place and, um, you know, how I validated the idea before kind of jumping into it. And then, um, you know, kind of talking about the growth story in the present day. So when I first, came up with the concept for brewmate. Um, it was built around the idea that like warm alcohol sucked and I wanted to create a solution to fix it. And so, um, you know, our initial concept was an insulated beer koozie for 16 ounce cans. Um, so, at, you know, in 2016, like craft breweries were popping up everywhere, left and right. Um, you know, this was a very, very fast growing sector in the beer market. Um, and a lot of like, even the, the light beer brands were kind of scrambling and um, trying to get into craft beer too, buying up craft breweries. So I knew there was opportunity there. And like a lot of the craft breweries happened to make their beers in 16 ounce cans. Um, and, and not just craft breweries, like also light beer brands. So Bud Light, Budweiser, Coors, like they all had a 16 ounce variation too. Um, so I knew that this was a growing size for cans. Um, you know, Monster was starting to use 16 ounce cans, uh, mm -hmm. Coca-Cola, like uh, uh, Mountain Dew, like a lot of the, the soda brands were starting to use 16 ounce cans. So, um, you know, I thought that like outside of craft beer, that 16 ounce cans were going to continue to grow and be more and more popular. And it was going to be more and more popular, more and more important over time to have a solution for those. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, again, I, I went 
first, like I was looking uh, for manufacturers. Um, so I had really learned how to source my previous two companies. Um, I used a tool called Port Examiner so I could look up import records for all of our competitors. Um, and I found like all of them were manufacturing outside the US. So I started doing a little bit of research on, okay, are there stateside manufacturers? If there's not, why is that? Um, what I found was for our product specifically that the only manufacturers were in China. So, um, you know, I took second trip to China, went and visited a few different manufacturers, um, ultimately like kind of settled on the one that I'm working with now. And um, I, just a quick question about that. Like how old were you when you were going over there? Uh, my first time ever going to China was when I was 19. Do they like, like, what do they think when a 19 year old walks in and like, yeah, like I want to get all this shit manufactured. Do they like <laughs> take you seriously? Yeah, they did. Um, so, so my first time ever going to China was when I was 19. Mm -hmm. I went there for two weeks. Um, so I was in Beijing for like a little over a week. I went to like Great Wall of China. Um, mm -hmm. I liked traveling, like travel was, a, is, was and is still a big part of, of my life. Um, and I liked traveling alone. So like I went to China alone for two weeks. Um, I stayed in hostels, you know, I met a bunch of really cool kids and kind of traveled all around China with them. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, when I went to my manufacturer, same thing. I, I mean, they were impressed, like rather than being nervous or anything else, they're like, wow, like you're one of the youngest people to like come and visit. And, um, you know, there were a lot of them, you know, were asking like, oh, is this for your parents or whatever? It was like, mm -hmm. no, like this is my company. Um, and I think, I think that to them was, it wasn't scary or anything like that. Um, they were just impressed. Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, well, I mean, they, you did fly across the world to go see them too. So that's got to show yeah. something. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what they were thinking underneath. I'm sure that there was some form of, mm -hmm. uh, of probably just leeriness against yeah. working with younger, uh, younger people, but just from a financial side, but like the terms that we had were terrible in the beginning. I mean, we had to pay it for a hundred percent of every shipment before it left China. So like mm -hmm. there were no payment terms and there was no risk for them. Like, yeah, you'd buy it. There you they go. were getting paid before it came here. So, mm -hmm. um, over time we definitely established that relationship and got to the point where like, you know, we have a very, very good relationship and obviously they trust in my vision. And I remember mm -hmm. having a conversation with them and like, I was trying to negotiate payment terms and we were only doing like a couple hundred thousand dollars at the time. And I was like trying to negotiate him in terms. I was telling him, I was like, I guarantee you within the next like year or two, we'll, like we'll be like a $10 million company. And they were like, no, <laughs> they're like, okay, like we're not giving you payment terms. And like, we hear this all the time. So like, yeah. unfortunately, you know, until you're at that point, we can't really talk to you about that. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had to get really crafty in the way that we paid for our inventory. So, you know, I was still running my other business at the time. I still had my house at this point. Um, so I had a lot of money wrapped up in that. And so like I had pretty much no free cash. Um, mm -hmm. so what I did like for our first product, um, I created a digital rendering of the product. Um, and then basically photoshopped that into people's hands in different scenarios and then ran, um, just some lead generation ads on Facebook to try and like gauge interest, uh, from people, you know, and it, it was effectively like, um, a, a homemade Kickstarter. Like, yeah. It was yeah. Deep landing page I created, um, you know, and, and the ads themselves were like very clearly not the finished product, but mm -hmm. the page was basically based around of like, here's the concept of what we're creating, you know, be the first to know whenever we get it in stock. And like we collected a few thousand emails. Um, we started kind of sending out newsletters, communicating with those customers, 
um, getting a feel for like how serious people were about like backing this idea. And once I had enough, um, enough support and like it had kind of validated the idea that I wasn't the only person that couldn't stand drinking warm beer. Um, that was when I was comfortable kind of investing a little bit of money. So I pulled a little bit of money out of my other company, uh, like $5,000. I used that to create like the initial mold. Um, and then I only created, it was like a thousand units for our first order. So it was very mm -hmm. small. order. Um, most of it was pre-sold to our email list anyways. So, you know, once it came in, we were sold out in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and I was able to like take all the feedback that we got from that and, and kind of go back to the drawing board and say, okay, you know, one, not only did like our sales surpass what I thought they're going to be, because just because you collect a few thousand emails doesn't mean a few thousand people are actually going to buy the product. No. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. so I had no idea what to expect. Like once it's actually landed here, just because someone says yes, doesn't mean that they're actually going to buy it. Um, yeah. But what I found was like the majority of them actually did. So, mm -hmm. so that was like a very reassuring sign. And from there, that really validated the idea for me. Um, to kind of go back to the drawing board, create a better product and start thinking about uh, Brewmate in a different way. And so, um, you know, at the time our name was actually Cryo Gear, it was not Brewmate. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Cryo means cold, so it was like cold gear. Yeah. And, and again, like this was a side project, like I was running another business full time day to day. And I was just working on this in the evenings and uh, weekends and like whenever I just had free time. Mm -hmm. and, you know, we got, it was like midsummer 2016 at this point. And, um, you know, we, I, I was, uh, on spring break. Uh, well, I guess, yeah, it was like May. So it was like a late spring break. Um, but we were at the beach. I was drinking wine. Um, I ended up getting a ticket for having glass on the beach mm -hmm. and I was like, shit, like I need to come up with a way to bring wine to the beach. Um, like, <laughs> anything that comes in glass bottles like not just wine but like vodka things like that mm -hmm. and um so like that was where the idea for the second product came into play so it was called the wine slater so it was uh an insulated wine canteen that keeps a bottle of wine cold for over 24 hours um, but more importantly it's made out of stainless steel so you transfer the wine inside and then you can take it into glass free zones and that was when like I, I really kind of went from, oh, I'm just creating a product to, I think I can actually build a brand around this. Um, so we did the exact same thing. I had digital renders created, um, ran lead generation ads to a landing page that kind of went over the product benefits. Um, this time we collected almost 7,000 emails and uh, we ended up ordering 7,000 units of the product. But this time we actually did a pre-order. So we required mm -hmm. people to pay upfront. Um, you know, and, and we pre-sold about 50% of that, which helped pay for the inventory. And then once it came in stock, we sold the other 50% in under 10 days. So we did almost $300,000 in sales uh, in under two weeks in Q4 of 2016. And at that point, like it just further proved the point that, you know, we were really tapping into something much bigger than what I had even previously thought. Um, and I like was ready to go all in. So, um, you know, for two months after that so early 2017 um i worked on finishing up everything that i had in the, uh, left to do at the house so outdoor landscaping things like that getting ready to put it on the market um as soon as it was finished i threw it up for sale um, my other business i was starting to look uh to kind of exit that and just focus on roommate full time um so by midsummer i had sold my business i had sold my house and moved into a small apartment um you know gotten our first warehouse 
because uh, I, you know, at the time I was running this all out of my basement. Mm-hmm. And um, so got in our first warehouse. Um, we were still running pre-orders. So everything that we did, um, we were really just like relying on the customers to kind of pay up front and, mm-hmm. and fund those orders because I was still kind of in the limbo. Um, once I sold the house and everything else, I obviously had a lot more money to kind of dump into the company. Um, but it was like early 2017, um, we launched our third product line. So, you know, we had the wine slater now. Um, we, we created a way for you to bring your wine into glass free zones, but there was no, nothing to drink it out of. So like, you're mm-hmm. not going to bring a wine glass to the beach. So most people were just drinking wine out of like plastic cups. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, there's has to be a better way to do this. So then we created, um, our insulated wine tumbler series. So it was like one of the world's first stainless steel insulated wine glasses. Um, and, and then from there, cause like at the time I hadn't really formulated the concept of only doing drinkware for alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually like looking to potentially compete in like the coffee mugs and, um, you know, drink tumbler spaces and things like that. Um, and I, I started to get really, really serious about roommates. So I was doing brand research day in, day out, figuring out like how the other co- uh, competitors in the landscape were thinking about drinkware and the future of it, what they're all focused on. Like what I found was all of them kept talking about hydration drinkware. So really mainly focusing on water bottles and kind of reducing pl- plastic waste. Um, but no one was talking about dehydration drinkware. And so the products that we were creating didn't exist. And the products that I had in the pipeline, like other, other product ideas didn't exist either. And so um, there was like a resounding success with every product that we launched. And it just further proved the point that we were creating products that people wanted, but no one else had created before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, again, the name was cryo gear at the time. Um, I ended up getting a lawsuit from a company in Florida called cryo entertainment. Um, they're like, a, they made uh, special effects for nightclubs. Mm-hmm. And one of their tubes was called a cryo tube. It was, uh, like shot out liquid nitrogen. Um, so if you've ever been to a festival or whatever, and you see like clouds of smoke, a lot of times it's just liquid nitrogen being shot out of a tube. Yeah. And, um, and so they, they sued us for using that cryo name because they were registered under barware. Mm. And so I had to go back to the drawing board. And um, this was like kind of when I, I wrote down the brand ethos for the first time. It was like, what do I think we can accomplish as a brand? What really sets us apart? And I just wrote down like providing a better drinking experience. And so with that, like that was what I wanted to formulate a name around. And so the idea for Brewmate was really like your drinking buddy. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like roommate. Uh, so like your drinking buddy, and ultimately like creating products that really enhance the way that you en- enjoy your favorite adult beverages. Um, and so to this day, like we haven't strayed from that. Um, we're really, really focused on innovation as a brand. So consistently churning out new products that are like either completely new to the market or significant step ups from what currently exists. Um, so we really focused on like identifying problems and solving those. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's like one of my strongest. Um, it's like one of the things I'm best at personally. So, um, you know, my role in the company is, is, you know, I, I work directly with the marketing teams, um, underneath me. That's what I get joy out of. So almost a CMO role, Mm -hmm. um, but also product development design. That's more what I focus on day to day is, um, kind of focusing on the, the innovation pipeline timeline for that. Um, you know, just, just working with the manufacturer to kind of bring those things to life and then working with our marketing team to formulate like, what's the plan of attack for bringing this product to market. So um, I think from day one, that's really been my, my strongest uh, or 
one of the things I'm best at. And so, um, you know, building the company around that was just about finding like really good people that, that were able to do the things that I wasn't fantastic at. Um, mm-hmm. our, our team is just made up of a bunch of like really scrappy hustlers that are, you know, passionate about the brand, passionate about what we're doing. And, um, you know, I've been able to really free up my time to just focus on what I'm good at. So, so, um, you, you became the inventor you always wanted to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Without the college degree. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't um, need it. Yeah. I mean, so I think that's the cool thing. Like with my first company, even after I left college, um, you know, I wanted to do product development design and the other companies that I had didn't really solve that. I think that's why I wasn't passionate because I was ultimately just taking like pre-existing products and, and I was just a distributor. Like mm-hmm. we were a distributor. I was just a, like, taking Pantone colors and, and creating new colors um, to an existing product. Like that wasn't really innovation. And so that innovation aspect was lacking and, and that's why I wasn't passionate about it. But with Brewmate, it was like, this is the first time I was able to take a product from, or an idea from like pen and paper to, um, you know, actually bringing this to life and then watching people um, actually benefit from that. And, and that's been huge for me. And that's what keeps me going. Like that's, that's really what I'm best at and, and what keeps me going in the company. And like, I think in anything that I do in the future, as long as it has that component, like I'll be passionate about it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's awesome. Um, and with that, like, w- where's the company now? Like, I know you guys launched retail stuff and, or, well, I guess kind of with a certain world scenario, you were saying that's not, um, it's kind of on hold, but I like I was recently I saw you guys launching all the the retail locations and like the bars and stuff that were being built out. Um, so it's like yeah. it's definitely yeah. So we scaled. So our first year in business, 2016, we did three hundred thousand dollars in sales. 2017, so our second year, we did two point one million. Um, our third year in business, we did twenty million, and then last year we did almost forty. Um, so this year, like our big focus for the last few years has really been building the brand, telling the brand story, really creating awareness for the products and demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that we've done that, like our focus is kind of building out um, our distribution pipelines. So, um, you know, we're very big direct consumer, really big on Amazon. Um, but we don't work with a ton of uh, retail stores. And for the past couple of years, like it's only made up five to 10% of our overall revenue. And, and retail is difficult because like, especially in this day and age, um, you know, retailers are bombarded with new products every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's hard to stand out to them. So if you're a new brand uh, and it's a new product and you don't have like a proven track record or, or proven sales history, then they're taking a big risk on you. Um, like their, their real estate and their sales is, or in their stores is very valuable. And so if they give that to, well, one, the cost to roll a product out in big stores is expensive to begin Mm -hmm. with. Um, And two, if they do it and it's a fail, then like the net loss is much bigger than you would think. And Mm -hmm. so they're very, very picky about the brands that they bring in house. And most of the time now they're like already established brands. Like uh, if a brand is launching and it's brand new, it's because the leadership uh, behind that brand already has like established relationships probably with the retailers. Like you see a brand new company that just launches in target overnight like whoever is leading that company probably already had a fantastic relationship with target and target knew whatever they were launching was going to be successful Mm -hmm. there has to be some level of trust for you to be successful in retail 
And so what I found early on was like all the conversations that I had, I mean, I was driving all over the US having meetings with like these big corporate companies like Camping World and Dick Sporting Goods and whoever. Mm-hmm. And like no one wanted to listen to me. Like I would go to pitch days and um, like I didn't close any deals. No one was paying attention. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until like year, like two and a half where like we were doing a few million dollars in sales and, and people were starting to see the traction we had that retailers were starting to come to us. So rather than me out chasing retailers, like we just created a page on our website where you could apply to become a retailer. Um, and we are naturally bringing in, like the more we were spending money on acquiring customers and kind of building that brand awareness, like the more retailers were wanting to work with us on their own. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for the next like year and a half, that was really all we were doing for retail. I mean, I, we didn't have an in-house sales team. Um, you know, we were in a couple thousand retailers that were a hundred percent organic. So these were all retailers that just approached us. And that kind of proved the concept to me that like retail is a big opportunity for us. Cause at this point, like we're fairly well established in the industry. Um, and, and so like for this year, our big goal was, you know, outside of obviously product expansions, we have a lot of new products in the pipeline for this year, um, team expansion, you know, we moved out to Denver and we're building an office here, things like that. But mm-hmm. outside of all of that, retail was our big, big point of growth. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, like we already had um, a couple thousand retailers we were working with, with like a proven track record showing that we have very solid sales. And, and outside of that, we were showing that like, hey, we're a $40 million brand that's proven that like consumers want these products. And so like, all you have to do is literally just put them on your shelves and they sell themselves. Like we're creating the demand around it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, January was huge. We signed another couple thousand retailers. Um, you know, what you were seeing, the bar build outs and stuff like that were for um, like Atlanta Gift Mart, Surf Expo. So a lot of these big expos and um, trade shows that we were at. And, oh, okay. and so um, that was huge for us. Like we opened a ton of new doors. The trajectory for this year, like we're up 500%. Um, and wholesale growth year to date. Um, in terms of like where that's going, we don't really know because obviously with the whole COVID situation, um, mm-hmm. most retailers that are non-essential are closed. So most of the retailers we work with, aside from liquor stores, are shut down right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and so um, that's kind of on pause. But you know, we're continuing just to, to evolve with the situation and um, kind of refocusing our energy back into direct to consumer and reactivating our current customers and kind of continuing to build that relationship and um you know just finding new ways to engage with with our current audiences and new customers since uh we're kind of all living in this like almost parallel universe like if you look at what we're the way we're living now compared to two months ago like it's just a completely different landscape and um you know we're all kind of in this together and so we're trying to to really just focus on on fostering those existing relationships and um, you know, ideally coming out of this with a much stronger relationship with our customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's all you can really do. Right. It's just, yeah. I don't know. You got to adapt and I don't know. I mean, it's an, it's a good time to be able to do that though. Right. Like instead of maybe, I mean, I guess it's always focused on growth, but now you have that time to really connect with the people you already have as, as um, customers and just build better relationships and stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's been really cool. It's been really important. Um, I think that the opportunity here too is like outside of um, outside of roommate and like always focusing on that. Um, this has given me a lot of time to really step aside and 
kind of focused on like doing some other things outside of roommate that, you know, I've kind of put on the back burner because I've just been so focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I cooped up in the house all day long. So, um, you know, it's, it's taught me a little bit about work-life balance. Um, so last, <laughs> like, you know, four years that hasn't really existed. It's like day and night. Um, all I did was work and, um, you know, if I got a text in the middle of the night, like I'm reading it, if I got an email, like I'm responding to it. And so, um, it's actually been kind of beneficial both from a, a business standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint to kind of help me reset and try and try and develop some like better habits and stuff too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to get caught up in that stuff for sure. Um, I, I mean, it's just like the whole world slowed down too, right? Which is nice. It's like everyone's kind of, I mean, a lot of places are just really on pause. So um, it's kind of nice. Yeah. You get to just take that time and, and do some things for yourself now. Yeah. Although yeah, it's, it's surprising. Like, I mean, things <laughs> like I, I was going into this thinking that I was just going to be bored out of my mind and have so much extra free time. But like, I feel like I'm busier than I was before. I mean, my, with my set work schedule, like, people for the most part haven't stopped working. Um, mm-hmm. they, you know, our retailers, like they're trying to find crafty ways to kind of drive revenue during this time. And um, mm-hmm. so we've spent a lot of time like working with them and, you know, working with our customers, working with all of our marketing teams to, you know, start pushing uh, new projects into the pipeline and stuff like that. So like, if anything, we, we've actually gotten more busy just cause like the focus is, I think everyone's a little bit bored. So they're trying to find time now to, uh, or trying to find things to fill their time. Um, which just results in like an ultimately like bigger workload because usually people are only working like set hours. Yeah. Um, now it's just like people are just cooped up inside all day. So um, yeah, true. They're almost. I mean, I definitely haven't found uh, found that it's. I mean, I true. Yeah, I feel like I've been working more too. Like I'll just sit in front of my computer for ten hours a day, and then like, oh, fuck, I didn't really do anything. But yeah. it's just easy to do, especially when you're inside. I'm like, well, fuck, what am I going to do? Sit on the couch? Am I just going to open my computer again and keep trying the shit I'm trying to do? So, um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of been nice because I've, yeah, I mean, it's allowed me to, to work on this stuff and really just do it. But, um, yeah, I think for people like us who, who uh, are working and have our own things going on and running businesses, like they're adapting and, and working and they want to keep going. I think it's just like, if, if you had a normal job and now you don't, you just kind of lost. Like, what do you really do? Those are the people who are yeah. kind of just sitting at home and, and bored now. Yeah. But I think it's also a good opportunity for those people to really like start working on things that they've had on the back burner too. Like, yeah, have all this additional free time. Like there's two ways you can spend it. You can spend one just thinking about like doomsday and the end of the world and (laughs) and, like, you know, scrolling through Instagram and like ultimately just being depressed. Cause like for me, that's what that does. Like the more I, the more time I spend on my phone and on social media and everything else, like the worse I feel. Mm -hmm. And, And I've noticed that like, there's a very clear distinction between days where I spend four or five hours on my phone compared to two. Mm-hmm. Like I feel much more clear. Um, you know, I, I, I'm in a better mood. Um, and so I've been, I've been, it's hard. Like when you're cooped up inside all day, right? Like you're bored. So if I'm not working, like what else am I doing? And mm-hmm. the answer for most people is you're on your phone. Um, so I, I've been just trying to learn new things. Like I started trading options. I like, learn how to do a Rubik's cube. I've been like trying to learn how to juggle. I bought a long board, like doing all these things that like have been like, Oh, I would like to learn how to do that. 
Um, but now I actually have the time to do it. So I'm trying to use that um, to like redirect some of this energy into positive things. So I can come out of this ahead and like say I actually learned something. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's just important to, to make sure you're filling yourself or filling your time with things that, you know, ultimately are going to be a net positive when this whole thing's over rather than just like what the majority of people are doing. Um, you just like sitting on your phone all day, which really isn't, you're not, you're not getting anything out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely an opportunity to pick up on like and learn whatever you want to learn. I mean, there's unlimited information, um, on the internet, you can still order anything you need to your, to your door. So there's really nothing holding anybody back. Um, and the phone thing, I, I think what's funny about that is like, not funny, but I mean, one thing that I've realized from coming to, to uh, baby bathwater and the events like that, um, is essentially like, those are the, you, like, I mean, you, you're one of the people that people see online and go, fuck, like, I want to be this guy. Um, you know, like how you're saying when, um, you're on Instagram and it kind of makes you depressed and stuff like that's the kind of, it's funny how it doesn't change though. It's like people who see you on Instagram probably think like, man, this like guy's living the life. Um, he doesn't feel this way. I want to be in his position so that, um, that, so that I'm super happy and nothing matters. But I think it's really what I've really learned from meeting people who like in my eyes are uh, successful and really living like, I don't know. I mean, created these massive companies and things and, and have lots of money. Um, they're no different than anybody else. They still have the same feelings and the same things bother them. And, and it's like, I mean, I don't know. It, it's crazy because actually this last year when I did come to baby bathwater, I was kind of like in a turn point where I was like, man, I'm not really happy with what I'm doing. Um, but leading into it, I, you know, I see all the people from it and they're like traveling, doing all this shit and making money. And I'm like, fuck, they must be so happy. And this year, um, I took a different approach and I just asked people like, you know, why are you doing what, what you're doing? And, um, are you happy with it? And, and honestly, most people were like, man, I, like, I'm really, I'm not happy with what I'm doing. I want to change. And like, you know, maybe they're running a $10 million business and still they're making tons of money, but they don't, they don't even like it. Um, so I think it's cool to see that that really doesn't make you happy. There has to be a lot more behind it. Yeah. I think people have this notion that like, as long as you're getting paid enough, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I think that what you would find is even if you take someone, let's say that has like a $500,000 salary, mm-hmm. if they hate their job, like they're not happy. That mm-hmm. money starts to kind of like, fade away to the point where like you'd be willing to take a pay cut to do something that you enjoy more. Mm-hmm. And I think entrepreneurship is the same way. Obviously the skills are different, but like it doesn't matter how much money you're making. If you're comfortable with yourself as an entrepreneur and like comfortable in your abilities and, and you know that you could kind of recreate this uh, with something that you're more passionate about and you're doing something that you're not currently passionate about, you're not mm-hmm. going to be happy. Like the money is not going to make you happy. And so I think that's like, the most important concept is just understanding that like for the first two businesses that I had, I mean, I was making good money, obviously, um, but not like the type of money that's, that's rolling with roommate. And I wasn't happy. Like I was always looking for something different. I was depressed. I didn't like what I was doing. Um, I was, I felt lost cause I was like, I just left school. Like, I was running this business, but I didn't know how it was going to play out. Even after I sold the first one and now I had like six figures in my bank account, it was like, 
you know, just a whole new set of problems. Like, what am I going to do with this money? What am I going to do next? You know, trying to find something to fill my time and like, am, mm -hmm. am I going to like get a job, like whatever. And so through each time, I mean, I didn't find real clarity as an entrepreneur and like true happiness with what I'm doing um, until roommate. And mm -hmm. even with roommate, I love what I do. And, and I am very passionate about roommate, mm -hmm. but outside of roommate, if you take roommate aside, I still have the exact same problems. Like I have anxiety. I have days off days where like I am depressed and like, there's no reason for it. Right. Like people would look in and be like, how can you be depressed? You have this huge successful company and everything else. And, and the answer is like, everyone's human. Like you just have bad days. You have days where you wake up and like, there is no, there is no reason. That's what, that's the scariest thing about depression is like, it doesn't, depression affects everyone. Like it, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how popular you are. Like what you typically find is the more popular you are and, and the more successful you are, the worse those problems typically, typically get mm -hmm. um, because there's this taboo around talking about them because people have this expectation that if you are successful, so think about like um, celebrities, right? Like, people have this notion of like, oh, if you're a celebrity, you're not allowed to be depressed or anxious. Like you have to be like this happy-go-lucky person because you have your whole life made. Like you're rich and powerful and, and popular. Like you have all the things that, that you want. And so then you start to doubt yourself. And like when you feel depressed or anxious, you're, you tell yourself like, no, like you're not allowed to feel that way because you know there are other people that have way bigger struggles than me. Why do I feel this way, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and it's dangerous. Like you, I think people just need to understand that like at the end of the day, we're all human and like, no matter how much money or success or popularity or whatever you have, it doesn't change the fact that we're human. And like, we all, um, we all have problems like, and we have our own set of problems and like your problems only get bigger, the more successful you are. Um, mm -hmm. to be honest. And like, I've just had to learn how to navigate those and, and you know, the, the, the term more money, more problems is like a, a legitimate thing, right? Like yeah. my life has only gotten more and more hectic. The more successful I've gotten, the bigger roommates gotten, like the more noise that's consistently in my head day to day, mm -hmm. like just so much going on. And, um, I, it's pretty hard to find like peace and quiet as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, again, like it's, it's like having like a severe form of ADHD. Like there's just so much going on. And you don't really get a whole lot of time to just like kick back and relax. Like it's not a nine to five where, you know, you, after five, you punch out and you don't think about work until the next morning. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's the most taxing thing. Like most entrepreneurs will tell you that it is very taxing. It's hard to separate that from your personal life. And, um, you know, I think every person deals with it in a different way, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, to go back to your point though, I mean, there's still people same thing. Like when I'm on Instagram scrolling, like, there's always people that are more successful. Like <laughs> I scroll when I see people and I'm like, wow, like I'm jealous, you know? And I think a good example of this, like, um, so rich, like the guy that started, um, um, I'm going completely blank right now. Wow. <laughs> see, this is what I'm talking about. So much going on in my head. Yeah. 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 Um, Dude, it's like one Fashion Nova. Oh my God. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Rich, like he started Fashion Nova. I mean, they're they're doing like two billion dollars in revenue, massive growth. 
Mm-hmm. And so like, we, I look at my girls, I'm like, wow, this is like, this is crazy, whatever. And then I see other people, I'm like, holy shit, like what I'm doing is nothing compared to what they're doing. And so you start <laughs> making these comparisons, like where someone that's doing 2 million is going to compare themselves as doing 40. And when you're doing 40, you're comparing yourself to someone who's doing 200. And like, the answer is like, there's always going to be someone that's doing more than you. And so I have to constantly give myself a reality check of just like, Hey, like what you've accomplished so far is awesome. And like, I just need to look at and just be focused on, on like what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I can't get hung up on who's more successful, who has a bigger company, how they got there. Like I admire those things. And when I see that, I'm like, wow, that's incredible because mm-hmm. I know the struggles that I had to go through to get to where I am. And I can't even imagine like what they've been through to get to where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, just realizing like every story is different. Every business is different. And like, success can be replicated either. So, you know, I can't just look at someone else and like, look at what they did and go, Oh, like they did this and I did this. So, you know, I obviously did something wrong. Like you can't make that assumption. And, um, no. I think I've gotten comfortable with that. Like I'm to the point now where, you know, I, I just accepted the fact that, you know, I'm on my own path and like what other people are doing doesn't affect me. What I'm doing doesn't really affect other people within my own bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, and just trying to be really, really laser focused with that. And like, that's helped keep some balance for, for mental health from just like not overthinking everything and, um, you know, constantly looking for like validation, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, yeah, I think it's just really, yeah, it's just good to hear that everybody's go- goes through the same shit. I mean, just, you know, just having people hear that is enough and like, fuck, like, I don't know. You really just got to find that thing for yourself and be okay with what you're doing. And, and that's pretty much it. There's just, in a sense, there's too much connection to other stuff. It's like, it, it helps sometimes, but, but a lot of times too, it's like, you're essentially just looking most of the time, the stuff people are looking at on Instagram or other social platforms are like irrelevant to where they are in life or, or to, like, it's not really directly affecting their life. Um, it just, I don't know. I feel like it just ends up putting thoughts in your head that are kind of like, you don't really need to think about that. You just need to do what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think I like the, the most valuable thing that I've kind of learned and is, is the fact that like, you just can't make comparisons. Yeah. So, you know, I can look at other people's stories and listen to their stories and pick things out that do apply to me. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, like that's really smart. And that would work for me. But like, you can't make a direct comparison and go like, um, you know, listen, for instance, like you can't just listen to someone's story and be like, oh, I should have done exactly what they did. And I would be at five times bigger than what I am right now. Like it just mm-hmm. doesn't work that way. So I've just, I've, I've gotten much better at, you know, kind of just listening and, and picking out the things that apply to me in a positive way of like, hey, this is something I could apply for the future, but mm-hmm. not necessarily like picking out the negatives of like, I wish I would have done this. Cause then you're just like, you're beating a dead horse and you're beating yourself up over something that you can't change. Like you really just got to be focused on the future. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think that's helped immensely is, is really appreciating the success that other people have had mm-hmm. and, and, you know, not looking for answers on why we didn't get somewhere, but rather looking for answers of like what we can do better in the future, so, mm-hmm. like how to better myself. Awesome. Yeah, man, that's good. Um, there's one last thing that I wanted to uh, talk about was sacrifice. Uh, Cause there's always, 
it, it always when you posted about how you had that Honda Civic before you got the car you have now um it, it came up the other day when I was on the highway I was driving home with my buddy and I don't know I forget what kind of car we saw but somehow that story came up and I and I told him he's like because there was like literally the same Honda Civic like piece of shit driving down the highway and I'm like dude this guy I know had one of those and then you know work and then he ended up buying this car that he really wanted and he's like he went from that to that I was like yeah um he's like what because you know most people will do like well I don't know which what model is but whatever you, you went you had your Honda and then you bought a, a McLaren the car that you always wanted um and he was like dude how would how would you do that um because most people like they just can't wait it's like they have to be like okay I can afford the next thing I'll buy a BMW then I'll buy an Audi then I'll try and get a Porsche or something they just won't wait so I think that's like I think that's an awesome story. Like, I don't know anybody else who's done that, gone from a 2000 Civic to to that. Yeah, so I mean, that kind of goes back to when I sold everything. So so when I sold my house, like, you know, and at the time, I mean, I still had a piece of shit car. I don't remember. It was like a 2003 or four Volkswagen TDI. So it was like a diesel manual, yeah. you know, Volkswagen. I got one of those. It was probably like four or $5,000. But even that, yeah. I was like, any, like even a couple thousand dollars is like, a few, you know, it was enough to like put back into the company and see um, mm -hmm. results from. And so, I mean, I liquidated everything. Like I moved in with a roommate. So I had one of my good buddies from high school. We moved into like a 800 square foot apartment. We were paying like three, $400 a month a piece. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I bought the, the Honda Civic. It was like two grand, 1500, something like that. But again, it was a manual. I was like, as long as the car is manual, I don't care. Cause I, I <laughs> yeah. just like driving a manual. So it was like, even if it's a piece of shit, as long as like, as long as I knew I was working towards something like that was, that was really important. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've heard a quote, just like, you always want to be working towards something. And so I think that if you reward yourself too often, you start to kind of lose sight of what the end goal is. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was like, I wanted to invest, you know, I believed in brewmate and I believed in the growth of it. And like, as time went on and I started to see like the investment that I was making into the company, the sacrifices I was making outside of that really start paying off. That to me only echoed the fact that, that, you know, ultimately if I were just to wait a few years or whatever, that, that I would be able to look back and all of the sacrifices that I made would be worth it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, every time I got in my car, it was just a reminder. It was like, Hey, you're working towards something. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm driving a, a $1,500 car while we're doing a few million dollars a year. You know, and we were at the point where even when we were doing $20 million a year, I was driving a piece of shit car mm -hmm. and, and I could have easily taken a salary. I could have easily used that money to go buy a car or whatever. But like, the thought that I always had was if I were to pull 20 or $30,000 out of the company or whatever, you know, what does that do for me? Right? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I have a nice car or whatever, but I'm actually hurting the growth of the company because I'm pulling money out. That's really important, especially with the rate we were growing and we didn't have investors. And so, um, it honestly, it, it taught me a lot about discipline. Um, and just consistently reassuring myself that, the sacrifices that I was making now would pay off in dividends later. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I had set a goal. It was like, once we hit um, over $25 million in sales that in a year that, mm -hmm. that I would buy myself my dream car. And so that was like, when we were at baby bathwater, we had just surpassed 25 million. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I actually like was buying the car when we were there. Like that was that was when I was like working with the dealer and like working on uh, and everything. Because you and, can't just and, walk in and buy one of those. Well, I mean, you can, but uh, I was looking for one specifically, and mm-hmm. um, you know, the one that I had found was in like North Carolina. Um, mm-hmm. It was from like the founder of Epic Games, who started like Fortnite. He had like a whole collection, and it was one of his cars. And <laughs> um, and it was like I and I didn't even take a salary last year, so I didn't even start taking a salary until the beginning of this year. But the mm-hmm. car was like the bonus to myself. Um, I've always been a car enthusiast. I love cars. Um, I don't care too much about like flashy things, but mm-hmm. cars were, were the one thing. I mean, I've had 26 cars, mm-hmm. um, and most of them were pieces of shit, but <laughs> still have well, this one cars. makes like, up for it. It was still fun. Right. Yeah. And so I always had like little side projects. It was always like rebuilding cars, whatever. It was just something fun for me. And, and like, I had told myself, you know, like I had sacrificed a salary for three years. I had reinvested everything. I had downgraded, moved in with a roommate, like made all these sacrifices. And so even though I wasn't really ready to take a salary yet, so still focused on the growth, like the car was kind of like the gift to myself. Um, and, and looking back on it, like, I'm glad that I waited. Um, mm-hmm. Even to this day, like I have such an appreciation now for the car outside of, of what the car is, but like it has a lot of meaning to me because it was, it was, um, it was the result of like just kind of reinvesting in myself and, and believing in myself and, you know, ultimately sacrificing three years. Um, and I just remember, like, I remember every time I got in that car, like I hated it. I mean, it was the <laughs> biggest piece of crap ever, but like I got into it sometimes and I would just smile because I like knew what I was working towards. And so mm-hmm. to be able to look back on that is like really powerful. Um, you know, it's something still like I am taking a small salary now, but, I'm still focused on the growth of the company. There's no point in paying myself. We've grown, just to give you an idea, like we've grown 12,000% mm-hmm. in the last three years. Like there is not a single stock that exists that is is 12,000%. So like, what is the point of me taking money out, putting money in a 401k, everything else, when like reinvesting money back into the company is going to pay off, um, you know, in ways that, that like the stock market or anything outside of that wouldn't. And mm-hmm. so, um, that's just the way I've tried to look at it is I'm investing in myself. I'm investing in my future. And, um, you know, we're in the process of like a growth equity raise right now to kind of pull some money off the table for myself and also, um, you know, invest back into the company, kind of accelerate our growth even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you know, it's just been really important to continuously reassure myself that I was working towards something. And um, I think the fact that I truly believed in it was what really kind of helped me keep it together for, for the few years that I was doing that. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the whole story is great. I like, I don't know. It's cool to hear everything and, 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 uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the listeners and everybody's going to love it. Um, is there anything else that you want to say? Any final words or anything that's coming to mind? No, I know before we hopped on here, we were talking a little bit about the juvenile detention story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I don't know if you were recording then or not, but I just wanted to touch base a little bit about like the accountability aspect of that. Okay. Um, so like just kind of a closing note. I mean, I think that the hardships that we go through in life, like you can either go through your entire life blaming everyone else for everything bad that happens to you, or you shift to the point where you understand that really at the end of the day, um, the only person accountable for everything that goes bad in your life is typically yourself. 
And like when I went to juvenile detention, I had, again, I had like a chip on my shoulder. Um, I really believed that like everything bad that was happening was because of everyone else. And I had a lot of time to reflect in there. And like, I came out of there understanding that really um, I was the reason I was in there. And I was the reason um, that, that my life the way that what, or my life was the way that it was. And um, I, I came out of that looking at life in a different way. And so like, if things weren't going my way, I, I really would try and identify why and, and make the changes necessary to kind of shift my life in a new direction. And that has paid off so well for me because I have gone through life now where like, I don't blame anyone for anything. If something goes wrong, um, typically, even if it wasn't directly my fault, there was something that I probably did that played a role in that. Um, and so I always try to look at like how I can improve myself, how I can be better, um, and like really holding myself accountable. I think that's important as an entrepreneur too, because you have like two types of leaders. You have leaders that um, lead on the basis of everyone is wrong and I'm right. And basically like anything that goes wrong is not my fault. Or you have the leaders that ultimately are, are more humble and understand that generally, um, you know, if something is going wrong in the business, for instance, even if it was an employee's fault, it, it's probably my fault from a lack of leadership or explanation or whatever. And I think those leaders are the ones that like, you know, I have a really good relationship with my employees. I don't blame them for anything. If something was wrong, there's oftentimes where I can tie it back to something that I did. Um, and, and it helps me become a better entrepreneur because I'm really trying to identify what I can do to continuously be better. Um, and so I just encourage everyone to kind of do the same. Like just, I think self uh, reflection is really important and like, um, not being a narcissist is really important. <laughs> like mm -hmm. if you go through your whole life, just thinking that like everything revolves around you, everything's everyone else's fault. Like, you're just in for a reality check. You're going to eventually get to a point where you realize that like all the negative stuff in your life has been cultivated by you. Um, and the earlier you realize that the better. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And I think the good thing about like, you're not using that in a negative fashion and like, Oh, like I fucked it up and, and you're not like, you're not getting, um, you're not getting down on yourself about it. You're just using that in a fashion to, you know, if, if it's essentially your fault or you created it, it just gives you the opportunity to fix it and be better and make it better. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, awesome. Okay. Well, yeah, man, I really appreciate you doing this and taking the time. I mean, I know that got a bit of extra time now, but, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch and thanks again for coming out. Cool. All right, man. I appreciate it. Have a good one. You too.